Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick, and we're back with part two of our discussion of whether or not Santa Claus is technically a god, at least according to the most common criteria used by cognitive science of religion. Uh, now, we had to break this discussion in two because it went so long, and now we're treating you to the second half of our conversation about gods, our brains, and Santa Claus. We hope you enjoy as we jump right back in. Okay, so we've been talking about these criteria that uh, Justin Barrett raises that you will find common to pretty much all beliefs in gods among, you know, religions you find in the world, that gods tend to be counterintuitive in some way, often minimally counterintuitive, that they tend to be intentional agents, that they have strategic information, that they in some way act in the world, and that they're capable of motivating behaviors that reinforce belief. Oh, and that's one other thing we should have emphasized, I guess we didn't, is that the most important thing about the behaviors that the gods motivate, the rituals or whatever, is that the the motivated action most important to this uh, system is that it reinforces the original belief itself. Right. right? Yeah, because that, that's how it continues. It's, it has to sustain itself through that. Yes. So I was just thinking to myself, okay, these, these five uh, criteria, uh, what happens if we apply them to certain fictional entities that either claim to be God or are believed to be a god of some sort within the fiction. Okay. Let's take uh, Gozer the Gazarian, for instance. One of the best. So it's it's a minimally counterintuitive uh, concept. You know, it, it has agency. Sure. It does a lot of stuff. Uh, but does it offer strategic information? I don't know if it offers it. I think it probably has it. Yeah. Uh, I also the, – about the, the only good example I had of this is that, okay, it – I mean, certainly it has strategic information because it can see into your thoughts and uh-huh. see what mental pictures you are filling your brain with. So I think that would count. It also has information that the world will be destroyed uh, by itself. Uh-huh. So that's 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 worth having, I guess. Like, is Godzilla a god? I mean, does Godzilla possess uh, strategic information or? Well, I don't no, I think Godzilla is just a big monster, right? Okay. But Go- Gozer, the Gozerian, uh, comes from another dimension. He, he's like a god that makes Godzillas, makes marshmallow Godzillas. Exactly. Okay. It takes yeah. the form of Godzilla, right? Um, okay. The big one with the Gozer, though, does it offer motivating behaviors that reinforce belief? Maybe. I mean, it seems only concerned with the opening of the door that will allow <laughs> it to destroy the world as it destroyed other worlds. I don't know. I think the case is maybe a little weak, but conceivable. I just realized I was calling Gozer a he. I'm not sure Gozer is a he. Gozer might be a she or 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 neither gender. I'm not sure. Yeah, I think Gozer's gender neutral. Okay. Uh, even though it, it does take the form of a, of a feminine figure uh-huh. in the in the movie, and I think, but I think in the original script, it was going to be played by. Um, Pee Wee Herman, right? Oh, wow. I, I, believe I didn't so. know that. Yeah. I say Gozer transcends our puny concepts of gender. Right. Oh, so we talked about Azathoth, Azathoth, uh, Azathoth however you want to say it earlier. Uh, I think this one fails because it lacks agency, and I'm not sure it actually acts in the human world at all. I think it's supposed to be just an entity out there in the void, and it's just supposed to be frightening and terrifying that it's out there at all. Okay. Um, Sutter Kane from uh, John Carpenter's In the Mouth of Madness. I think hmm. he checks off all the boxes easily. All of them. All of yeah, them. okay. He's a, a human that becomes a god, 
but then he's God. I mean, by the end of the film, there's no questioning it. I got to watch that again. It's, it's, it's pretty solid. One of my favorites. Okay, here's one we have to discuss. And this is one we talked about in greater detail on a past episode of Stuff to Blow Your Mind. That was a while back. Yeah. The Flying Spaghetti Monster. Okay. Uh, the, the Pastafarian concept, uh, which granted is kind of a, a – it is it is a counter-religious argument. It is yeah. an idea uh, that is brought up. It's kind of a contrary uh, uh, concept, right? Well, it's another one of those that's obviously a joke at the moment you hear it. Right. You, know, you, you don't have to investigate, like, do people seriously believe? I mean, like, <laughs> you, you just know instantly it's a joke. And again, that's a clue that there's, like, there are some kind of intuitive constraints on what gods are supposed to be like. Right. I mean, his the flying spaghetti monster, I think it, the biggest flaw might be that it is not minimally counterintuitive. It is it, it it's has too counterintuitive. It's too yes. counterintuitive. It's like God is a potato. Yeah. Right. But on the other hand, I, I do think it checks off a number of the boxes. Uh, you know, his, he has detectable actions and they see but they seem to be limited to the creation of the world. Mm-hmm. And also the changing of scientific measurements with his noodly appendage. Right. You know, uh, changing radiocarbon dating uh, right, and right, so right. forth. Uh, well, I mean, I guess another thing is the question of like whether people sincerely believe the things you're talking about to meet these criteria or just propose them obviously in jest. Mm-hmm. Because with all these fictional examples, I mean, you're thinking up ideas of where you can create a – Something that meets all the criteria and yet obviously it still is not a legit god found in the world because nobody actually believes in right. it. Right. Nobody actually worships Gozer. Uh, I mean this flying spaghetti monster is, is a, an interesting case though because I, I think it's probably safe to say that nobody actually worships the, the, uh, the flying spaghetti monster. No one truly believes in the flying spaghetti monster. Mm-hmm. But at what point does the current uh, – concept of the flying spaghetti monster, at what point does it at least partially transcend? At which, which point does it get one noodly appendage over the line into godhood? Well, if you go on with a joke long enough, you'll start to want to find meaning in it. Yeah. It always happens. Yeah. I mean, I I mean think it, there's something to be said in uh, meme culture with uh, on that count, I believe. I think that's absolutely true. I think it's also true. Watch any uh, irreverent TV show long enough. Eventually, mm-hmm. it gets sentimental. Huh? It's true. I mean, it, people want to start finding meaning in the chaos of humor and satire. Hmm. That's a good point. All right. Well, let's bring it back around to Santa Claus at this point. Um, first, uh, I just want to recap a little bit about Santa. Uh, you know, I, want to go, I don't want to go into a full history of Santa Claus, but it's, <laughs> it's interesting to just remind everyone where the concept came from. Uh, a few years ago, I chatted with Adam C. English, chair of the Department of Christian Studies at Campbell University, about the evolution of Santa. And, uh, is he a Santa scholar? Yes. He is the author of the book, The Saint Who Would Be Santa Claus, The True Life and Trials of Nicholas of Myra. Uh, and in this book, he pointed out that the modern Santa Claus bears almost no resemblance to the historic origins of a fourth century Christian bishop. Um, and his continued evolution reveals a great deal about modern culture. Mm-hmm. Uh, this uh, interview used to be hosted at StuffToBlowYourMind.com, but uh, now StuffToBlowYourMind.com is um, – uh, exists only in a very stripped-down form. Uh, but I'm, I'm going to just read a, a few uh, uh, quotes here from uh, the author. Uh, Adam C. English uh, uh, wrote to me and said, quote, First and most obviously, Santa has been scrubbed of any and all religious identity. I think that is something people notice when they see the European Old World St. Nicks, who are dressed like bishops with a mitre, stole, ecclesiastical vestments, a crozier staff, and many times wearing a crucifix or cross on the neck. 
In contrast, Santa has been domesticated, commercialized, and universalized, or secularized, depending on your viewpoint. The miter has been softened into a a floppy fur-trimmed stocking cap. The vestments have been turned into a red fur suit uh, with white trimming, the stole into the big black belt, and the crozier staff into a large sack of toys. (laughs) Even his name has undergone change. Santa Claus is an Americanization of the Dutch Sinterklaas, which is just St. Nicholas. His other name, Chris Kringle, is the Americanization of the German-Austrian Christ Kindle or Christchild. Oh. Martin Luther attempted to replace Nicholas as the gift giver with the baby Jesus. The Christmas gifts come from the Christ child. Well, the Chris Kringle, the religious with Chris Kringle, the religious significance uh, important to Luther has again been lost. Whoa. He continues, quote, the first depiction of Nicholas in America by the New York Historical Society showed him as a stern bishop in the European fashion. But within 50 years, he transformed into the magical elf who drives a sleigh pulled by reindeer and drops down chimneys. Um, and, and then also uh, he drove home that there was never a once upon a time pure religious Santa Claus. Christmas has always been a blend of the sacred and the secular, popular and the solemn, commercial and the familial. Um, also, he points out that uh, you know a lot of it also dates back to older beliefs. Uh, he said that uh, in pre-Christian times, the Greeks, they celebrated uh, Linnea. Romans had the Saturnalia in uh, late December as well as the, uh, the Bromalia. Germans hunted and feasted at Yuletide. The Irish had Rin Day. So, I mean, you have all these different uh, midwinter festivals, and they all involve a lot of you know, merriment, feasting, etc., Okay, well, this introduces some difficulty because if we're talking about evaluating whether Santa Claus meets the cognitive science of religion criteria of a god, mm-hmm. what Santa Claus do you go with? Do you go with like, you know, St. Nicholas or do you go with like some kind of, uh, you know, as defined in some traditional work or do you try to to gather in the great, you know, tapestry of different Santa Claus stuff out there today and 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 consider it all together and and put together a I don't know an amalgam. Yeah, and this is a, a problem that, that Barrett gets into in the paper. Because because really on one hand you could you could really cherry pick from global and historical Santa Claus uh, ideas and concepts and then choose the the descriptions and attributes that best support your case. Right. If you're saying God or you're saying not a God, uh, you could point to evidence to support it. So, but, but, it, but first of all, Barrett just says, okay, at first glance, he thinks Santa meets all five criteria. First of all, Santa is minimally counterintuitive. He's a flying, jolly, old, kind-hearted man. Right. He's like he's grandfather Christmas. Also, Santa is an intentional agent. Santa, Santa has a mind. Santa wants to do things. He is not an inanimate carbon rod. Right. Also, he possesses strategic information. He knows if you've been bad or good. He acts in a detectable way. He leaves gifts or even a note in some cases. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he motivates reinforcing behaviors. Kids leave out mi- milk and cookies for him. That is the sacred offering that is made to the great elf himself. Uh-huh. Well, I, I mean, and I guess you would hope that uh, his actions encourage children to be good around Christmas. I mean, that's what it's supposed to be. That's right? true. That's the, the whole other uh, aspect of it as well. Uh, but ultimately, Barrett, he's not convinced, is he? No, he insists that Santa ultimately fails at being a god. Okay, now what is his case here? Okay, so on the counterintuitive 
negative point, he gets into this this whole like cherry picking thing that we discussed earlier. He counters that it, 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 that we're not unified enough in our vision of Santa. In some uh, some belief uh, incarnations or in some media incarnations, we just see him as like a kind old man. Uh, while others show him as being this magical being that we've mostly been talking about, right? This idea that he lives forever at the North Pole and flies through the air and doesn't obey the laws of physics and time. Uh, and, and he says that some films portray him as, as being a normal person who just has, quote, special friends, animals, and resources. Now, Barrett makes a distinction that I'm not sure I fully get. I wonder what you thought about this. Barrett makes a distinction between a counterintuitive being, like a, t- a counterintuitive man who has some special qualities versus just like a regular being who uses magic powers. I'm not sure I really understood what the distinction is there. Like if you can use magic powers, that seems counterintuitive to me. Yeah, I don't know. The The way I was thinking about it when I read it was, okay, he's saying that sometimes Santa Claus is Superman, sometimes Santa Claus is Batman. Superman has m- – amazing powers that are otherworldly. Okay. Batman is just a normal guy, but he has special um, gadgets and he has special friends. Oh, okay. So like in the the Santa Claus movie, the Mexican Christmas mm-hmm. movie, um, it, Santa Claus doesn't have the innate power to teleport. He has the flower to disappear. That's right. Yes. And if he loses the flower to disappear, he can't teleport anymore. He's literally – what? He's treated by a dog I think in that. Yes. <laughs> you know. So yeah, that's a great example. That film is just a great film in general and I believe – played a key role in – we're talking about the, the idea that Santa Claus must travel as a concept. Mm-hmm. Like that film, if I remember correctly, played uh, a very important role in introducing the concept of modern Western Santa Claus to a Mexican audience. Huh. Uh, but yeah, in that, he seems like just a ridiculous old man if he is uh, – if he loses any of his magical items. OK. I can see this. And he depends on a lot of uh, – cooperation and support uh, to to really get the job done. Yes. He's got his friend Merlin. He's got all the children who help him. He's Mm -hmm. got the the machine with the lips, whatever's going on there. Yeah, he's more of a Batman Santa Claus for sure. Absolutely. Whereas in Santa Claus versus the Martians – uh, the other uh, you know, MST3K riff Santa Claus movie, in that he has powers. He can make toys do his bidding. Yeah, he's Hermes. I mean, yeah. he... <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, let's move on to the strategic information front. Okay. Uh, which, again, at the, at the surface level, it seems like it's he's got it. He knows if you've been bad or good, right? Yeah. But uh, Barrett, again, argues that it comes down to consistency, and it's not consistent enough for Barrett. Because does Santa truly know if someone has done or plans to do something morally objectionable? Yeah. uh, Barrett says that knowing whether a person has been bad or good is not actually strategic information. It's the same kind of judgment another person could easily make. Uh, And what would constitute strategic information is, for example, knowing in advance whether somebody is going to be good or bad. Uh, Again, I'm not sure if I agree with Barrett here. I, I think that knowing whether somebody was bad or good, especially if you know what they did in private Mm -hmm. when nobody else was there to see them, that seems like strategic information to me. Like if you could watch what other people did in private without them knowing, would that not provide you with information that could give you a strategic advantage? 
Yeah, I don't know. It's it's one of those areas of the Santa Claus um, concept where it does seem like a boiled down version of what you see in in God, right? A, yeah. a, a more limited version. And I think part of this is kids are generally children are not attributed with tremendous powers of hiding their wrongdoing. Uh-huh. Like generally, whatever they're doing bad, it's super obvious because that's what we're getting onto them for. Right. You know. Okay. The next one: uh, Does Santa act in the world in detectable ways? Well, Barrett says that Santa meets this one, but weekly, since the gifts come once a year in a limited manner. Okay. So it's not, you know, he's not bringing you gifts every week or every month even to to, to really, you know, make sure the detection is uh, uh, is, a, is, a, is, is obvious, you know. Yeah. And I would say the production of the gifts, as with many of the things that are, say, prayed for, petitioned for in religions with with things that are definitely recognized as gods, it's similarly ambiguous in terms of the mechanism. Right. You know, you like go to sleep and then the presents are there in the morning. There's a lot of kind of wiggle room to think about what's going on there. Right. And then sometimes Santa, I mean, as we've discussed previously on the show, Santa tends to come. If he, if it is, if he is, if it is discussed that Santa might come, he tends to come. Generally, threats of Santa might not come this year because you've been bad. Generally, those threats are not acted upon. But on the other hand, Santa doesn't always bring everything you wanted. Mm-hmm. Sometimes Santa doesn't bring those gifts that are ridiculous or dangerous. Right. Uh, so, yeah, there, there's a lot of room to, I don't know, where it's up to the user kind of to infer the amount of detectable behavior that they wish. Right. And then let's get around to motivating, reinforcing behavior. Does Santa Claus do this? Well, we chatted about this a bit in our Krampus episode, uh, actually. Does Santa really work? Does the idea actually make kids behave? And Barrett contends that it does not. He says <laughs> Santa's going to come either way. And again, it's also only going to impact Christmas. Now, this is just what we were talking about. Like, does does the idea that Santa might not bring you any gifts at Christmas, does that have any impact at all on a child's behavior in March? Yeah, I don't know. Because uh, in March, when you're eight, like Christmas is a thousand years away. Yeah, and just think also about like how long a month is to a child compared to how long a month is to an adult. Yeah. Yeah, I guess that's what you mean by a thousand years away. I mean, every year to to a five-year-old feels like an eternity. Right. Um, but yeah, uh, th- there was another thing I was thinking about here, which is that the most important behavior for a God belief to reinforce in order to have mimetic resilience, in order to survive and spread, it's got to be belief in the God itself. We mentioned this earlier. Does Santa's motivating power in turn motivate belief in Santa or even if it works, is it just uh, to motivate, like, being well-behaved? Yeah, that's a very good point. Yeah, does it actually motivate belief in Santa? Do kids – I mean, you'll see – I guess you see a little of that, you know? Uh, well, kind of like like in, uh, you know, an inquisition for a normal religion but applied to the Santa world. Like, yeah. you've got to believe or you'll get in trouble. Well, I think the, the area – in the Santa concept, as as I experienced it growing up, and in the, the current rites and rituals that we maintain, that the real area of of like proof, right, mm-hmm. is the is the carrot that has been bitten by the reindeer and the the half consumed plate of cookies and milk, uh-huh. like that. That more than the presence is the, the like the fingerprint of God, right? Explain that. Yeah, checkmate atheists. <laughs> checkmate, Richard Dawkins. <laughs> Anyway, Barrett also points out that a big problem facing Santa is, to go back to uh, some of the origins we've mentioned earlier, is that St. Nicholas is dead. Boo. <laughs> no, he's not. No, no. The connection to the long-dead saint is clear. 
and myths don't really explain it. Uh, he is not the resurrected St. Nicholas. We're never told that's the case. Uh-huh. Uh, he's not the ghost of St. Nicholas. He's not Nicholas the White returned uh, after fighting the Balrog. Mm-hmm. He's just... He just also happens to be the mortal man who definitely died in the year 343 CE. This is something I'm going to come back to in just a minute. But, yeah, there there are not very strong, coherent Santa apologetics that are designed to work on adults. Right. Yeah, there's, there's no – like if they explain, well, yes – uh, Santa Claus was once St. Nicholas, and after his death in 343 CE, uh-huh. et cetera, et cetera. No, it's just uh, like Barrett says, it's like you're into Santa, and then you look him up, and you're like, oh, St. Nicholas, oh, and he's uh-huh. dead. And he says that that takes the, the punch out of it. All right, we're going to jump in here and take a quick break, but we'll be right back. And we're back. Now, in uh, in discussing all of this, Barrett also provides a humorous chart that compiles his thoughts uh, and his well, his interpretations of, of these five uh, categories, not only on Santa as a possible god, but also Mickey Mouse, the Tooth Fairy, and George Bush. <laughs> <laughs> I think this would have been uh, George W. Bush, right? Yeah, I believe so. But uh, for instance, we already went through Santa Claus, but on Mickey Mouse, he gave Mickey a yes for counterintuitive. Yes, Talking mouse, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes for intentional agent. Sure. Uh, but then a no on having strategic information. Right. A no on acting in the real world and a no on motivating and reinforcing behavior. Uh, yeah, I'm with all that. On the Tooth Fairy, Tooth Fairy gets yeses across the board except for possessing strategic information, hmm. which – yeah. yeah, does the Tooth Fairy really know anything you don't? Uh, uh, I mean, maybe knows a little bit more about your dental hygiene than other entities. But doesn't really seem actionable. Yeah. yeah. And then finally, George Bush. George Bush gets yeses across the board except for counterintuitive. So he's an intentional agent. He, at least at the time, possessed uh, strategic information. He acted in the real world and he motivated reinforcing behaviors, but he was not counterintuitive. Wait, does he motivate reinforcing behaviors? I guess so. Yeah. I guess, yeah, I think so. But, you know, he it was just a human. Right. I mean, yeah, it's true. Any actually existing human walking around on the earth motivates reinforcing behaviors because if you act as if these people don't exist, it will cause problems for you. Uh, I should also point out that if you if you want to actually look up this paper and the full title, which we did not share earlier for reasons that will become obvious, is Why Santa Claus is Not a God. Again, Journal of Cognition and Culture, 2008. If you look it up, he also has a wonderful Venn diagram <laughs> of how all five of these concepts uh, interact and the, the like the one safe zone where you have candidates for successful gods according uh, to these, uh, these ideas. Now, I would say to be critical of these uh, – Criteria we've been discussing, I think you could argue that Santa meets all five criteria, at least in some cases of belief and Mm -hmm. maybe not in other cases of belief. And yet still there is no active cult of Santa whatsoever among adults. And this suggests to me that while I think these five criteria are all very good starting places for evaluating God-type agents in people's beliefs, there have got to be some other criteria here that are not really accounted for. I think one major factor playing against belief in Santa Claus as a god is that there is, first of all, a rite of passage in which children become aware of the underlying Christmas gift mechanism. 
and there are not any significant numbers of adults insisting to other adults that Santa Claus is real and is a god. Like you've got to have a foothold of people starting off insisting that it's real in all cases Mm -hmm. and not just say in the presence of children but like two other adults and they would have to be, you know, trying to make a case, you know. And once you had that actually, I could see it being – surprising how easy something like God belief would pick up because there's nothing as convincing as other people's confidence. Mm. It's like embarrassing how susceptible we are to just sensing confidence in other people and thinking, oh, maybe there's something to that. So do you think that there could come a day where we would say, oh, yeah, when we when we were uh, kids and when we were, you know, younger adults, uh, Santa was just an idea that we uh, we told kids about and only kids believed in it. But now we have all these adults all over the news media and they're just fiercely defending belief in Santa Claus and I'm afraid to say anything. I don't think you would get that because I don't see that there's a major motivation to start a movement like that mm-hmm. and I – think that the people who tried to start a movement like that, they would not have a major motivation and they would look foolish, at least initially, right. until they you know, got people believing them. So I, I just don't see that as likely to happen. Now, I, I think you could probably propose things that are equally ridiculous, but you can imagine more of a motivation for them to come about. That Maybe you could. I mean, they sound crazy to us now, but if enough people were confidently proclaiming them, say, uh, take a, a major political figure and start saying that they're a god. Mm-hmm. That sounds ridiculous to us right now, but you just get a number of people loudly, proudly proclaiming that. I think you could get some buy-in. Oh, yeah. I mean, you if you listen to the, the right people, you, you hear that about contemporary political figures to a certain extent. I don't think I've heard anyone say that uh, the individual in question is a deity, but I have heard people say, well, if you look at, you know, the way uh, you know, such and such is written in the Old Testament, yeah. then clearly that makes room for me to, you know, to, to look over this particular individual shortcomings, et cetera. And uh, yeah, I mean, it's it's not too much of an extrapolation to get to the point where you can imagine someone saying, uh, no, this this politician is a god. Well, and the division between a figure of major religious significance and a god themselves is not always as clear as we might want it to be or think it is. Mm-hmm. There's another thing that I think is getting in the way of, of Santa Claus becoming a legitimate god belief among adults, and this may be a weirdly specific nit to pick. Uh, but I think it hurts to suggest that there is a physical location on Earth where he resides and combining that with like modern geoimaging and maps. Like it, it would be really hard to contend that Santa Claus is a literal physical being who lives in a toy workshop at the North Pole. Most God beliefs that have survived into the modern technological era have either always been or have had to retreat into uh, intangibility. Mm-hmm. Uh, for instance, it would it would be hard to insist today that there are Greek gods that literally inhabit a palace at the top of Mount Olympus. Like you can see pictures of what it looks like up there. Right. Um, th- they would have to become invisible or start to occupy some non-physical dimension or something like that. Right. Now, as always, when you're talking about, you know, real phenomena and culture, there are exceptions. An exception I can think of is Mount Kailash, for instance. In in Hinduism, uh, some believe this to be the, the, you know, it's a physical mountain. It's a real mountain. You go there. People make pilgrimages there and they walk around it. Some people believe it to be the home of Lord Shiva and the goddess Parvati. But you're not allowed to climb up on the mountain to see for yourself. And I think this belief would probably also tolerate some non-physical interpretations. And yet, uh, I, I think you could potentially imagine Imagine, imagine a world, if you will, 
in which St. Nicholas is never fully divested from his religious origins. Mm-hmm. And, and, and instead of it being – instead of Santa Claus being this thing that is sometimes brought up about the secular war on Christmas, you know, and taking Christ out of Christmas, what if St. Nicholas on the whole – across uh, you know western civilization uh, remains this um, this religious figure who also comes at christmas and brings toys and lives at the north pole and then you have all santa believing nations agree to not explore the the arctic because that is where Santa lives, mm-hmm. and then forging treaties with non-Santa believing nations uh, that where they agree, yes, we won't explore the Arctic because we realize that's sacred to you. Then perhaps you could keep uh, you could keep the 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 the, uh, uh, the, the residence of Santa an article of faith or not. It might not actually work, but no, it's possible. <laughs> I think I think you'd still have the major problem of like the the generational transfer of the knowledge of the Christmas gift mechanism. Yeah, you know? like the fact that at some point you meet the man behind the curtain and. It's it's mom and dad. I think that has an incredibly powerful demotivating effect on belief. Like, Whoa, you're really going for the throat with that <laughs> one, Joe. I, I didn't. I didn't go that far in talking about the magic of Santa. It's weird though because I feel. I feel. Oh, more, I'm sorry. Did I do bad? Well, I, it's weird for me because I feel more. I feel less pressure about um, discussing. Uh, like religious concepts, uh-huh. uh, you know, been saying that, okay, you know, we have this concept of God, but there's no actual deity that resides in the heaven. Mm-hmm. Like, I, I feel better about saying that than to come out and say that uh, Santa Claus is your parents. Well, we already said, oh, come on. <laughs> I don't know. Not... I'm not saying it makes sense. I'm just saying um, that's how it feels. I'm like, oh, that's that's a step too far to say not only there is no Santa and he is me. That's exactly – in fact, you're exactly making my point because mm-hmm. it's not just that at some point the, the other kids on the playground start saying, oh, you still believe in Santa. Santa isn't real. I mean that would be one thing if that was happening. You could still maintain belief mm-hmm. even in a hostile atmosphere. People maintain religious beliefs in a hostile atmosphere among nonbelievers who mm-hmm. challenge their beliefs. Uh, but the fact that the mechanism is revealed by the, by the people pulling the levers right. that – the the uh, it is me statement is the most powerful moment there. That's where like it can't really survive that moment. Yeah, but sometimes you don't completely have that moment. I don't know. Like some yeah. some parents, they don't have like a sit down and say like, all right, here's the here's the truth. So. Um, I think another important I'm thing— I'm sorry. I didn't mean to do something no, bad. No, no, no. You, you didn't. I'm just saying that that kind of—I I, I felt that—it says more about me as a, as a parent that's mm-hmm. currently maintaining the, um, the magic of Santa and trying to figure out, like, where it goes from here, you know. Uh, but, but I do want to come back to, again, to Santa and godhood. I think it's worth mentioning, first of all, that Santa has encompassed aspects of old gods already. Uh, you have such characters as the Germanic god Woden, uh, the godlike entity of Russia's uh, dead Mores or old man Frost, who, of course, factors into another MST3K Rift uh, right. film, uh, Jack Frost. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and I think he's more – there's a, certainly a clear-cut case for Jack Frost being a deity uh, since he is a – you know, he's a natural force in, that is personified. Sure. But then also we have to get into discussing just like how the – how concepts of God and gods are going to vary from culture to culture because a lot of this has revolved around very, I think, Western concepts sure. of an all-powerful God, you know, or, or even like ancient Greek concepts of like really highly powerful anthropomorphic uh, entities, right? Yeah, um, 
I mean, it's something that Barrett mentions in the paper is that there, these criteria are supposed to apply to all kinds of gods. I mean, so they would apply to, you know, uh, spirit gods that live in the trees and stuff like that mm-hmm. or uh, household gods and the, like they should apply to all of these categories. But it's clear that at least I think you and I by our cultural context are very conditioned when we talk about gods to think about like the monotheistic religions. Right. But but I do wonder if despite what Barrett says, I wonder if some of the household god concepts concepts do kind of fall through the cracks of this a little bit. Hmm. Uh, I, I was thinking particularly about uh, uh, about about China here, because in China, uh, Santa has really only gained traction there uh, during, uh, really only gained traction there in the 1990s. Uh, so you won't find Santa wearing Confucian robes or anything, but apparently you will see him on doors in places often relegated for the gods. Uh, Chinese households with double doors sometimes boast twin images of Santa, a place also reserved for Chinese New Year posters and the traditional uh, Min Xin or door gods hmm. of, uh, of, of Chinese tradition. And, and I think it, this forces us to realize that there's, you know, there's, again, there's God in the monotheistic tradition, and then there are the gods of various non-monotheistic religions. And, and we hardly just mean the pantheons of Hinduism and ancient Greece, but again, these household deities, such as the Chinese domestic gods, like the, the kitchen or stove god. And then, you know, the, there are variations of this in Western traditions as well. Uh, interestingly enough, though, it is uh, sometimes held that the kitchen god uh, in Chinese uh, custom returns to the celestial realm shortly before Lunar New Year in order to report household activities directly to the all-powerful Jade Emperor. Whoa. So um, – Some it, strategic information there. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, you know, at, at first it might seem like there's not anything strategic there, but clearly the kitchen god has strategic information that then has uh, important ramifications for the, uh, the, the, the household affected. Well, one thing I was thinking uh, to complicate this is I used the obvious example that seems laughable to us of the Crunchwrap Supreme God. Mm-hmm. But I think that there, in fact, are some types of household God type entities that are – they are intentional agents in that they can act and they have like thoughts and stuff like that. But they're also inanimate objects, right? right. Yeah. Am I, I wrong so. about I, that? I, I believe like, so, yeah. There are like household appliances that are gods and like <laughs> food items that are gods but they, they're just imagined to be those inanimate objects with intentional agency. All right. We're going to jump in here and take a quick break, but we'll be right back. And we're back. So there's another way to think about Santa in relationship to gods and religion, and that's by focusing on the fact that if he is a god, he's a specific kind of god, right, which is a moralizing god. Like he knows if you've been bad or good, so be good for goodness sake. And I think uh, to people who are primarily familiar with only the largest world religions today, you know, you got Christianity, Islam, Judaism, Hinduism, Buddhism, Zoroastrianism, all that. It probably just seems like moralizing is an inherent part of what a religion is, right? Yeah, I would think so. I mean, especially with the the, the major monotheistic religions. I mean, yeah. that is the the model, right? The big the big sky daddy that is going to be disappointed in you and uh, punish you if you uh, do not behave morally. Totally. Like all those religions have concepts or codes that in some way regulate moral conduct. They encourage one type of behavior over another. So you got the, you know, supernatural justice in heaven and hell, divine retribution or resolution in the workings of karma, etc. But not all religions are especially moralizing and not all gods are especially concerned with 
moral behavior. Like if you look at smaller religions practiced all around the world and especially deeper into history, you start to get the picture that many gods and many religions are basically amoral, that, that they involve myths and rituals and that the gods don't really care whether or not you are morally good or bad. They care whether you say, perform the rituals or not. And of course, this isn't to say that the people practicing these religions are amoral. They, of course, would have ideas about moral conduct just like anybody else would. It's just that the, you know, in these societies, the regulation of morality does not seem to come from the gods or religion. It comes from other sources. In the same way that the amoral god doesn't care if you've been bad or good, we can easily imagine like the tyrannical king who doesn't care if you are a good person or not, but are you um, are you paying your tribute to right. him? Are you obeying the laws that he set out, not because they're moral, but because they uh, reinforce his rule? Right. It's not follow the golden rule or something. It's kneel before Zod. Right. Now, now we mentioned earlier how the Jade Emperor in uh, Chinese uh, traditions and Chinese mythology does seem concerned with what's been happening in your house via intel provided by a household god. But I think what's interesting concerning that, and I don't bring it up to try and like, you know, uh, cast down this idea, but rather to like add maybe a few wrinkles to it. Mm. I think what's interesting is that Chinese customs put a huge emphasis on ancestors. And I think you see this in other models uh, as well from around the world that stress spirits of the dead as entities that have not completely faded away and may be connected to the gods in some way. Uh, I, I guess a true moralizing god in the form we're talking about here is one that has no, shall we say, blood relation to the mortals in question. Zeus, for instance, always seems more king than father, even in dealing with his own demigod offspring. Uh, you know, he's he's certainly not a moral entity himself. No, I mean, yeah, you look at the Greek gods, they don't seem at all concerned with moral behavior. I mean, you might get little snippets of that here and there. It does not seem to be the main focus of the Greek religion. Right, and then many of them, too, are, of course, more... It's not even – it's limiting to try and even think of them as being immoral or amoral because they are more embodiments of drives and yeah. uh, aspects of uh, the human condition. Yeah, uh, totally. I mean they serve, a, they serve a narrative function, right? Just mm -hmm. the way that like the characters in your novel don't necessarily – they're not necessarily going to be good people. Like they're, they're doing things to serve a narrative function. I think a lot of gods in history are that way except you did need to do the rituals. Right. Well, like Bacchus, for example. Yeah. You know, like Bacchus <laughs> – I guess you could say Bacchus is amoral. But, but even that kind of puts a limit on what Bacchus is. Like Bacchus is more the embodiment of like – of just sort of primal instinct and primal drive and desire. Right. Uh, now, of course, whenever you're talking about like a big, complex uh, human phenomenon like religion, there's going to be all kinds of variation. There's no, you know, it's hard to make generalized statements that are always true. But historically, it does appear to a lot of scholars of religion that over time, there was a pretty major shift in the world from amoral religions to moralizing religions. And again, that doesn't mean amoral people. It just means like, you know, gods that aren't concerned with moral behavior only with rituals to gods that have moral codes and stuff. And the era of moralizing gods also seems to be linked with like other traits of the religions that bear them. For example, the trend toward moralizing gods seems to be paired with uh, features like omniscience. Like in order for a god to be aware of your moral conduct at all times and punish you even for doing wrong in private, the god needs to be all perceptive. You know, he sees you when mm. you're sleeping and so forth. And so some scholars have actually proposed that 
the emergence of big moralizing gods and big moralizing religions could have had major effects on sort of uh, society and ecology and, and the history of human civilization. Like one hypothesis that's been knocking around for years, uh, I've mainly seen it associated with a book by the Canadian psychologist Dr. Era Noren Zion called Big Gods, How Religion Transformed Cooperation and Conflict. Uh, uh, I might not be fully doing it justice, but the basic idea here is that like big, powerful, moralizing gods made civilization with large settlements and lots of trade and interaction between strangers possible. Uh, I think the basic reasoning is that if people only live in small settlements, it's hard for individuals to get away with bad, dishonest behavior because you quickly get a bad reputation if you, right. you know, everybody around you knows you. Yeah, there's only one person selling bread. <laughs> you know, yeah. it's, a, it's a small community. Uh, but uh, so, yeah, so they get punished in social ways, you know, by other people. But in a world with big cities and lots of business and interactions between people who are probably never even going to see each other again, it's a lot easier to be a cheat or a thief or whatever and just keep getting away with it. Thus, the, the need for a belief in an all-seeing judge who holds you accountable, who won't just let you cheat and harm people and then escape into the anonymity made possible by a big society with lots of trade and lots of strangers. Uh, now, as always with this kind of hypothesis, it's important to remember the difference between like telling a plausible story and proving an explanation is correct. You know, I'm all for informed speculation in areas where hard evidence is lacking. That's a lot of fun to do and we like to – we talk about that stuff all the time. But it's also important to remember the difference between that and proof. So it is an interesting hypothesis, but like is there any way to test its predictions? And I think the answer is sort of. Uh, it's the kind of historical explanation that would be difficult to be sure about. But one study I was looking at uh, found an interesting way to test its consistency with the facts. And this was by using a big historical database called Seshot to check uh, to check the timelines basically. On average, based on what we know about history – does evidence for big moralizing gods tend to show up in a region of the world directly before big increases in social complexity? Does it look like the emergence of these big moralizing gods is making like big cities and complex trade possible? Uh, so there was a paper published in Nature in 2019 by Harvey Whitehouse et al., um, and uh, the, the results were interesting. They did not find, in fact, that big moralizing gods created booms in social complexity in a region. But they did find a historical association between the emergence or like our first evidence of big moralizing gods and booms in social complexity in the timeline. It's just that the order was reversed. Quote, our statistical analysis showed that beliefs in supernatural punishment tend to appear only when societies make the transition from simple to complex around the time when the overall population exceeded about a million individuals. So it looks like they found there is an association between, uh, you know, big booms in population and social complexity, but it looks like that the religious changes came about after the transformation or, you know, the formation of big mm. complex societies. I think that's interesting. Well, yeah, it reminds me of our discussions on uh, health theologies in the past. Yeah. Uh, you, know, you know, the ideas of, as this, uh, this study points out, supernatural punishment. Mm -hmm. And uh, I've, I have frequently, uh, you know, stated my displeasure with, with any health theology model. I, I think that it is largely a... Supernatural revenge fantasy and a barbaric one in which we 
we uh, commit individuals or groups of people uh, to some sort of fiery torture and rape in the in the afterlife for things that we see them or we perceive them getting away with in this life or not being properly punished for in this life. So mm-hmm. I could see that very much lining up with this. It's the idea of there are people out there that are getting away with it. Uh, there has to be – they cannot do that. They would not be able to do that in the smaller realm. And here in the larger realm of the city, there still must be some sort of uh, of punishment. And therefore, it becomes necessary to have this imagined punishment in the afterlife. So the moralizing gods with divine retribution are perhaps not something that makes big civilization possible, but something that happens because of the resentments generated in a big civilization. Yeah, I wonder. I wonder. I think that's a – an interesting way of looking at it. Again, one is hesitant to to find nice, concise explanations right, for anything yeah. that emerges. And uh, totally, uh, all the caveats we already stated. Yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, I'm wondering. So, if if they're on the right track, that this historically was the trend. Like, first you get a whole bunch of people together, all trading with strangers and stuff, and then shortly after that, you start to get the moralizing gods who see you when you're sleeping and know when you're awake. Does this have any relevance to Santa? Does it tell us anything <laughs> about the jolly old elf? I mean, maybe in the sense that Santa is a concept that is bestowed on young minds by adult minds. And mm-hmm. so, therefore, we could be taking the the larger model, boiling it down into a simplified form and giving it to them. So, you know, ultimately, I don't know how much I – I don't know I don't know to what extent there's really a lot of uh, – Pleasure to be gained for a child imagining the bad kids not getting anything for Christmas. I, I don't particularly I don't remember so, dwelling on that as a kid. <laughs> Maybe that's just you. Some kids do like the idea yeah. of other kids getting punished. Oh, you, can, uh, you can see the delight in their eyes. <laughs> you, never, you never notice this when like the bad kid gets their comeuppance? Well, I don't know. Maybe it depends on the, the environment in which the child is brought up mm-hmm. because I feel like currently – with my child, I don't I, – I've never heard him bring up the idea of somebody getting away with, with bad behavior. Hmm. You know, like either bad behavior is dealt with by teachers or by another parent that's there. Uh, you know, certainly we live in the age of, of you know, so-called helicopter parents where there's generally – there generally are a number of parents hovering around a playground environment, et cetera. Right. So maybe he just hasn't gotten to the point where there is this realization that, yes, sometimes when you are bad, you absolutely get away with it, at least in this lifetime uh, or at least until Christmas rolls around. Oh, that's interesting. But it, it comes back to – I mean, it's it's the, the flip side of the coin, right, of the, the, the classic theological quandary. Why do bad things happen to good people. Why do good things happen to bad people? Why right. do bad people get away with being bad? Right. Well, if you have the concept of an all-powerful moralizing God, it necessarily invites that question when you start to see flaws in the system. Things right. don't look like they're working. I mean, to come back to, again, to the idea that Santa does tend to come through, even for the bad kids. Like, there's going to uh-huh. come a point where you realize, no, my classmate um, uh, Damien was terrible this year. Like, he is awful. Uh-huh. And Santa gave him everything he desired and then some. Something is wrong with this system. It's all for you, Damien. Ho, ho, ho. <laughs> exactly. Because I guess the, basically, given a, a complex society, mm-hmm. that's going to happen inevitably, even or perhaps especially with environments where you have like really tyrannical rule in place. Mm-hmm. Take, say, uh, like a North Korea situation where okay. you have like informers in um, – 
uh, like in smaller groups that report back if anybody's speaking, uh, you know, out of line about the regime. Sure. Like even, of course, within a regime like that, you're going to have people that then abuse the already abusive system and find ways to benefit from it. Oh, yeah. So there's always going to be somebody in these systems getting away with it, no matter what, uh, you know, uh, cultural um, institutions and systems are put in place to prevent it. Yeah, I think that's a good point. Now, uh, you know, on the subject of, of city gods and moral gods, I can't help but turn my mind back to the work of Julian Jaynes. Oh, boy, yeah. yeah. Author of The Origin of Consciousness and the Breakdown of the Bicameral Mind, which we uh, we discussed uh, in a couple of, of older episodes of Stuff to Blow Your Mind. I think we more or less recently re-ran those. Uh-huh. And, uh, and occasionally it pops up. But... Um, he spends a fair amount of time pointing to the, the structure of ancient cities with their houses of the gods at the center, what he refers to as bicameral architecture, mm-hmm. uh, each city centering upon steeply rising pyramids topped with god houses, where he says, quote, the king dead is a living god. The king's tomb is the god's house, the beginning of the elaborate god house or temples. And, you know, th- this gets a little bit into the, the idea of the, the, the ancestors remaining alive, like the mm-hmm. dead king has not died. The, the idea of the dead king is the, the form through which uh, one hemisphere of our brain speaks to the other. Right, yeah, that, that was the basis of his whole he, – he's trying to prove his case that like there was this historical transition where like, you know, where the gods were literally talking to people. But it, of course, it wasn't supernatural entities. It was the non-dominant hemisphere of the brain. Right. Yeah. Uh, but it, it's important to note that like in the, the, the purely bicameral scenario here that he was describing, like the god would not be – reminding you what the rules are, that God would be telling you what to do. Uh, So he would point to the difference between moralizing and non-moralizing gods as being key to the breakdown of the bicameral mind. Hmm. Oh, yeah. For example, he points out that no one is moral among the God-controlled puppets of the Iliad. Good and evil do not exist. But he points out that in the Odyssey, the character uh, Clytemestra is able to resist Aegisthus because her mind is like that of a god. Hmm. So he writes, quote, consciousness and morality are a single development. For without gods, morality based on a consciousness of the consequences of action must tell men what to do. So I, I think the idea here is that there is no Santa Claus in the Iliad <laughs> uh, and that I, so, yeah. it would not be necessary uh, for the children of the bicameral mind. Certainly in the Jane's verse, yes. that, that is uh, the case. It is interesting. Uh, now this, is, this is something that is perhaps a, a difference between uh, Santa and various incarnations of the god is that god and gods speak to humans. Mm. In a way that Santa doesn't really speak to us. I mean, I guess Santa does take the form of a like there's a Santa's helper at the mall. Yes. And he directly speaks to you. Uh-huh. And then there is the, the letter writing, etc. But there's no well, voice of Santa that comes to your mind. Are, are, do pretty much all kids, uh, are they told that when they sit on Santa's lap at the mall, this is not the real Santa? This guy works for Santa? I believe so now. Yeah. Now, I don't know if that used to be the case. Uh, certainly... If you had like a small – it's kind of like Krampus and, and Santa, yeah. right? Like do you tell them it's really the Krampus is coming down from the mountain and that's really St. Nick? Huh. Uh, or, or do you let them in on the fact that these are people pretending, embodying these things? Well, I wonder if it's kind of like you know the priest of a religion dressing up in garb that indicates the deity itself yeah. and being sort of your, your intercessor, like the, the person who intervenes on your behalf for the deity. Uh, I, I have to say since we began – uh, uh, recording the, this this pair of episodes on Santa, I have introduced and sort of reintroduced my son to both 
the Mexican Santa Claus film and Santa Claus versus the the Martians. Whoa. And that also like brought up the the, the question of like Okay, what is this version of Santa I'm seeing here? This is not the real Santa story because, uh, you know, this doesn't line up with uh, what I've been told. This doesn't line up with what I've been told. So already you're having to – there's another layer of having to say, well, this is an interpretation of what Santa is. And it it made me think back to a film. I don't know if you've seen this titled Santa Claus. The I think it was Santa Claus the Motion Picture. I'm not sure. With John Lithgow in it. No, I haven't seen it. I think Dudley Moore. Okay. May or may not have played an elf. It's been a long time, but it came out at just the right time in my childhood where I still largely believed in Santa Claus. And here was a movie about Santa that even at that point was ridiculous. Uh-huh. And I, wond- I remember wondering what the real Santa thought of this film. You know? <laughs> Whoa. <laughs> like, did he approve of like, this? Like, was it blasphemous? <laughs> in a sense, you know, because yeah. like I'm, I'm thinking, well, the reindeer don't fly because they eat a special candy. Mm-hmm. And then humans, John Lithgow wouldn't be able to fly because he ate a special candy cane. Right, yeah. Uh, How did Dr. Lizardo become Santa Claus? Exactly. So um, I don't know. That doesn't really answer any questions. <laughs> it raises more questions <laughs> about uh, uh, you know, the, the hoops we make our, our children jump through when it comes to our, um, our mythical godlike beings. All right. So in the end, Barrett says Santa Claus, not a god. What are you saying, Joe? Uh, yeah, I think not a god, though I think it's not necessarily because I uh, come down the same side as him on all of his main five criteria. I do think those criteria are interesting and worth talking about. I'd say the main things that make Santa Claus not a god are like this other stuff we were talking about. Right. For my money, I'd say, okay, Santa is not a god, mm-hmm. but he contains pieces of a god, and I think you could imagine a world in which he one day becomes a god. Sure. I think what it would take was adults insisting continuously, right. like a significant number of adults insisting it's true. Right. And, and then the cultivation of a – like the, the editing and the cultivation of a version of Santa Claus that works for adults as well. Yeah. Uh, and I don't know what would ever cause that. I kind of doubt that would ever happen. <laughs> but if it did, then I think you, I think you could be there. Yeah. All right. So obviously, we'd love to hear from everyone about uh, this particular question because a number of you out there have either you grew up with some sort of uh, Santa concept in your household and or you have a Santa concept in your current household or you have uh, an outsider's view of all of this, which, Mm -hmm. of course, would be very helpful. Uh, One thing I'm curious about real quick, how does – how when you were growing up, uh, how did your Santa concept interact with your religious beliefs? Right? Oh, yeah. Like, especially if maybe if you weren't a Christian but believed in Santa, like, mm-hmm. how does that fit together? I think, I, you know, I have a feeling that sometimes Santa Claus is, in a way, kind of like cruelly and intentionally sacrificed in order to uh, drive home the difference between a, a, religi- a concept like Santa and the religious concepts that are uh, upheld in the household. You know, mm-hmm. not a war on Christmas, but a war on Santa. Yeah. Yeah. All right, so let us know. We'd love to hear from everybody. In the meantime, if you want to find other episodes of Stuff to Blow Your Mind, uh, well, you can go to StuffToBlowYourMind.com. It'll redirect you to um, a listing of episodes, and you can find a listing of episodes more or less just like that anywhere you get podcasts. Um, I don't know. We can't keep up with all these websites, but they're out there. You can go. You can subscribe. You can rate. You can review. That'll help out the show. Uh, let's see what else. Um, oh, and if you uh, if you want to, I guess you can follow us on social media. We're on various um, 
civilization-destroying platforms out there. Uh, but uh, the only one we're really likely to interact with is the Stuff to Blow Your Mind discussion module, which you'll find on the Book of Faces. Huge thanks, as always, to our excellent audio producer, Seth Nicholas Johnson. If you'd like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for the future, or just to say hello, you can email us at contact at stufftoblowyourmind.com. Stuff to Blow Your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Thank you.